0: And welcome back to Pop Enlightenments, in association with the Centre for Enlightenment Studies at King's College London and with the British Society for 18th Century Studies. We're your go-to podcast for discussion of the 18th century in modern popular culture. I'm Dr Emerus Jones, Senior Lecturer in 18th Century Literature and Culture at King's College London and editor of the British Society for 18th Century Studies reviews site, Critics. I'm joined today by Dr Stephanie Howard-Smith. Stephanie got her PhD from Queen Mary University of London with a thesis on the cultural history of lap dogs which I've I've got to say is a thousand times cooler than the subject of my own PhD it sounds fantastic since then Stephanie has been a teaching fellow at the University of York she's not here today to speak specifically about representation of 18th century animals in pop culture though I think that would be a fantastic topic Instead, Stephanie is appearing in her capacity as the critic's website's foremost reviewer of 18th century-related video games. And I'm very glad that you can join me for this episode, Stephanie. Welcome.
1: Thank you.
0: Ever since starting this podcast, I've hoped to have a chance to put video games in the spotlight. Millions of people who might otherwise not have known their George Washingtons from their George III's have experienced 18th century history and have perhaps even been educated about it via the Assassin's Creed series and other recent games. Often these are vast historical playgrounds, offering incredible levels of immersion and attention to detail, yet owing to a number of factors, some of which we might discuss here, the world of academic 18th century studies has for the most part remained uncertain of how to approach these pop-cultural sources and how best to engage with their audiences. Stephanie, before I introduce some specific examples of the games themselves, perhaps we can talk a bit about what games offer us as 18th centuryists, what they can do that other types of media can't, and also some of the inherent challenges of talking about them in this kind of context. What would you say are the particular merits of exploring 18th century culture through a game?
1: So as gamers ourselves, I think the thing they most offer us is that they allow us to have a deep dive into the periods we're interested in. You can spend hours exploring your own non-linear way through a particular city or a place, And it allows you to have a kind of greater level of contact with the culture and what the developers put in the game for you. On top of that, in terms of thinking about pop cultural responses to the 18th century, it's the sheer popularity of these things. The fact that Assassin's Creed has shipped uh, 10 million plus units of quite a few of its games. Mm. So in terms of how many people are playing and responding to these representations of the 18th century, I think it's something that would be bad to ignore, basically.
0: I mean, I remember you saying in one of your your critics reviews specifically that at the very start of Assassin's Creed 3, which I'll I'll talk more about in due course, but you, you are in a theatre in which John Gay's The Beggar's Opera is being performed. And just stopping to think actually about the sheer numbers of people, the millions of people who otherwise might have no idea of what this play is, being exposed to it, okay, not in all cases actually realising what's going on, but... Still, it's it's difficult if we were just to ignore that, I guess, from an academic viewpoint, yeah, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it turns out it ends up being a kind of bookend between that game and the one that uh, goes after it. And, yeah, so the fact that 12 million-plus people have sat through the first lines to act one, scene one of the Beggar's Opera is just incredible. And mm. it's something that's not really talked about.
0: But yeah. I mean, maybe it, it's also worth just thinking about some of those potential obstacles to engagement as well and the reasons why we might not as academics talk about and write about video games quite as much as we maybe should one of those obstacles it seems to me is the sheer length actually of some of the games that we're talking about Um, and in terms of the, the time investment actually that some of these games require if you're to put it in in 18th century terms and thinking about use of leisure time in the 18th century i would say you could easily read a huge novel like uh, richardson's clarissa several times over in the time that it takes to see everything there is to see in a video game like skyrim for, for instance not that that is set in the 18th century
1: yeah i think some of these games that we'll be talking today are probably about 30 hours plus but lots of the games being released on the market are 60 hours plus and you're right that is not just clarissa but pamela and about, yeah, several other different levels ten times over each or something, like depending on how quickly you read. It's an incredible... So that that can put people off straight away because it's a, it's a massive outlay of time at the outset. But I suppose in addition to that, there are things like... Uh, the games actually put restrictions on things themselves. So unless you buy a certain edition of, I think, when Assassin's Creed 3 came out, unless you bought the PS4 Special Edition, you'd miss out on an entire scene with... Um, benedict arnold which is weird and wouldn't happen in mm. any other art form it's just strange yeah
0: the yeah, feeling that we're getting different versions of of the same thing i mean it, it's also the fact that they are games isn't it and even if they are at times relatively straightforward games they require a certain level of skill they will mostly require some kind of financial outlay in order to to afford whatever console or pc it's going to to play on and moreover i suppose it's another obstacle for us that you can't really jump around in a game in the way that you might jump around in a, an 18th century novel uh, and kind of piece together what's happening over time in that way in, in a game you're forced most of the time at least to pursue a story in quite a linear fashion pass through whatever kind of gates have been set up to um, regulate your progress and that, that does seem a problem with the medium itself, that it makes it harder for us then to, to analyse a particular scene, to go back and explore a particular moment as scholars.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so even though you might be able to move through an open world totally freely, like you said, there are bits that will only happen in certain chapters, so you want Hmong to relieve a moment, and there's no way of doing that unless you go and watch the walkthrough on YouTube. But in that case, you're losing some of the experience of being in there mm. and having the... the being able to move your character about and make the choices you wouldn't game, which is probably one of its. That's that's why they're. That's why they're, that's why you want to play them for that sense of personal control over what's going on. Um, so I think on the one hand, the non-linearity is part of its charm, but we're also as gamers constricted by things like uh, boss fights where you can't progress unless you do certain things in a certain different way. Uh, and there aren't any other art forms that kind of put these restrictions on their players or well yeah. not players that their viewers or whatever you want to use, yeah.
0: Hmm. I mean, I, I wonder also about a, a mode that has crept into to more recent games in the Assassin's Creed series that we might, what well, we will talk about in just a moment, uh, but that didn't exist for any of these 18th century set games, this discovery mode that has come into um, kind of that ancient Egypt set Assassin's Creed Origins recently. Which might be a way forward, maybe, for video yeah, games. Yeah, and it's
1: deliberately made for class use, which is really cool. Exactly.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I seem always to be talking about my, my four-year-old son in this podcast, but I will mention that he has been playing that entirely non-violent way to appreciate the kind of historical world created in the game. He just loves jumping on a camel and running over the deserts. I, I know that he's not going to get into any combat or anything as part of that experience and, no, it's, it's amazingly refreshing. Like I say, I, I kind of wish it were there in more of the, the games that maybe we'll move on to talk about in a minute. Yeah,
1: and I think those kinds of experiences are kind of some of the most pure moments of enjoyment you can get from games being whacked into a totally alien environment for us, which sounds familiar because we've, we've studied it or we know about it. And it's just it's a sense of wonder that gives you that is brilliant. And, yeah, it's a shame that none of those modes have been made for the 18th century games in the franchise so mm. far, but maybe they could do a... We could go back and fix
0: that. That would, that would be marvellous. I mean, I suppose it brings us on to another point and another obvious hurdle that we have to address when talking about, it, about games in an academic context is the, the associations that we tend to have of gaming and the gaming community, I guess, um, and also the kind of the self-perception, the self-defensiveness of the so-called gaming community in, um, in reaction to attempts to analyse, attempts to identify politics within games. There is a, a kind of tribalism, I guess, that can be quite off-putting when looking in from the outside at what gaming involves. If it does involve something to do with one's own identity, that might be immediately off-putting to, to those wanting to use these games in some kind of scholarly agenda. Does it strike you as slightly ironic, I guess, that something, a medium that you would think would be so open to questioning assumptions, historical assumptions, and, and actually putting you in the shoes of different characters, forcing you to see through their, their eyes and, and explore their journey, can at the same time have been co-opted, it seems, in a very widespread way by political groups that want to shut down debate and see it purely as their area of fun that other people are not able to enjoy?
1: It's, it's frustrating in, in lots of ways. It's frustrating for someone to only see, in this case, usually white male experiences represented. But also, so it's frustrating on a political level, but it's also frustrating mm. as a gamer. I'd love to see games that were more open to exploring different people's stories and uh, maybe approaching different eras and different characters. Uh, so I think it's frustrating on, on two levels, because I think we'd have a more rich gaming experience both in who is gaming and in the kind of games you get to play if people open up a bit and mm. accepted that, we're, that they're coming looking at gaming through certain biases and in their quest to make gaming apolitical are politicizing it in really not nice ways yeah. so it's like there's, it's become particularly vitriolic mm. we were talking earlier about uh, the gamergate Uh, controversy that happened about I think 2013 Mm. uh, which was a direct response to people talking about how women are treated both in games and as makers of games themselves uh, in not positive ways Mm. and uh,
0: and suddenly that controversy seeming to anticipate a lot of broader political arguments and controversies which have then spilt out over over the last few years I mean I I still think one can see the seeds for a, a lot of our current political situation and, and the kinds of voices and the kind of vitriol you've mentioned there in in those kind of arguments so no wonder then if academics might feel hesitant about embracing this as their own community or as, as having something to say to to students and and researchers um, i mean a, a few other points a few other obstacles just before we move on to to think about specific games i wonder if the extreme up-to-the-minute contemporaneity of video game culture also is is a bit of an obstacle for us in terms of analysing something in a scholarly way, publishing articles about it, considering it, it normally takes a couple of years even to publish an academic article. It seems by the time you get something out there into the world that is responding to a game, quite often it's the game's going to be ancient history actually. Um, we're, talking, we're going to talk in a moment about Assassin's Creed 3 released in 2012 and it might as well be decades old for all that uh, kind of the, the current video games press is interested in. it.
1: Yeah, most writing by uh, games reviewers seems to come out in the immediate weeks and months afterwards. So being one that games themselves take a long time to, to make by the time we could have a say about about anything, and that's if you have the time to play the game in the first place, let alone write an article or something about it, you're talking about a lag behind when it's its release date by a number of years, at the maybe a year at the least, uh, mm. and at that point you're you're removed from the popular conversation about it, which is a shame because I think we have things to add to the conversation that aren't currently being said.
0: Definitely. Um- A few few more thoughts. Video games are, for the most part, inherently kind of a collaborative endeavour in terms of making them, apart with maybe a few exceptions of real sort of auteurs who control the whole vision of a game. But for the most part, we're looking at massive endeavours here where you've got countless people involved in programming, in writing, in designing. Is it maybe off-putting to us? I mean, I speak as someone with a literary studies background maybe also off-putting to be dealing with something that is so overtly collaborative that you can't necessarily identify a single agenda all of the time, a single kind of voice that is framing that work of art.
1: Yeah, I think that is frustrating. And I think gaming companies, especially big developers like Ubisoft, kind of features one of their, their pluses. At the beginning of every game you play in Assassin's Creed, it comes up with a disclaimer, this mm-hmm. game is a product of you know people of all political persuasions, blah, blah. Um, but then within that we can there are so, because the game is political inherently uh, whether all gaming is political but definitely Assassin's Creed is, it's hard not to try and isolate it and I was reading one of the level designers talking about how because of that she sees Notre Dame basically as her little Mm -hmm. her construction Notre Dame is her own little voice in the game where Mm -hmm. she's adding bits to the building to reflect her own personality and the way she feels about that so you can term like that but it's not the same as for instance a directorial voice or it's 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 Mm -hmm. it, it can be frustrating in that case
0: i mean it strikes me that actually that might then lead us back to some ways of reading and ways of interpreting that are quite relevant for 18th century studies in terms of collaborative writing and coterie writing being prominent in the 18th century itself and as literary historians us needing to kind of figure out where one voice ends and another begins or perhaps deciding that it doesn't matter where one voice ends and another begins um maybe i'm reading too much into it there but it it strikes me that it's still useful i guess that we we move away from the idea of the author and, and are able to identify what is still artistically valuable or historically valuable through a these
1: plurality of voices through mm-hmm. a plurality
0: of voices Okay, well, let's move on then from this general consideration of games as a medium to to introduce some of the specific games that have taken 18th century subject matter as their main focus in recent years. And certainly the most famous and most financially successful games set in the 18th century have been those that we've already mentioned, Ubisoft's Assassin's Creed series released between 2012 and 2015, at least the, the installments particularly related to the 18th century. If you're not familiar with it, Assassin's Creed is a history-spanning franchise telling the story of modern-day researchers who access simulations of particular historical periods. In the process, uncovering an elaborate alternate history hinged on the centuries-long conflict between two secret organizations, the Assassins and the Templars. The series began with a, a game set at the time of the Crusades and in its most recent installments has moved back into the ancient past with stories set in Ptolemaic Egypt, as I already mentioned, and in classical Greece. But it has, I think I'm right in saying, spent longer in the 18th century than in any other time period, with 2012's Assassin's Creed III taking place during the War of American Independence, Assassin's Creed IV: Black Flag dabbling with piracy earlier in the century, Assassin's Creed Rogue, exploring the Seven Years' War and the rather maligned Assassin's Creed Unity relocating to France at the time of its own revolution. And I realise even as I say that, that I've also left out a couple of spin-offs uh, also set in the 18th century. Was it Assassin's Creed Liberation? Yep. Is that right, yep. Stephanie? Which is
1: set in New Orleans and features a, a female protagonist who is the daughter of a white man and an African woman, which is obviously something quite unusual now, mm. Left in 2012, which is mm-hmm. pretty cool. Uh, Yeah.
0: And also some downloadable content for those games that I've already mentioned, which I I guess is is also rounding out what, in the end, is quite a thorough view of 18th century history and and some parts of 18th century history, like the Seven Years' War, that you wouldn't necessarily have thought would immediately attract uh, big budget games designers to set their games there. Uh, Stephanie, you've reviewed a, a number of the Assassin's Creed games for the critics' website. Do you enjoy them? I hope you enjoy them as we I, <laughs> have asked you to review them. At I love
1: them. I find them to be just, just great fun. I am a big fan of Natural Treasure and mm-hmm. uh, the excellent Nicolas Cage film. And they're, at <laughs> their best, they remind me of, of that, just the, the silliness and the, the fun of it. But at the same time, uh, I like that they are willing to uh, explore some settings that aren't normally found in, in pop culture representations of the 18th century, uh whether this is the the place like i don't know uh haiti or the Mm -hmm. time like the the seven years war which is yeah so they're willing to take risks there which i find fun uh i like that they occasionally they try to put viewpoint to to take the viewpoint of protagonists who we don't normally see in video games uh even though these tend to be the spin-offs rather than the main game so because AAA games they're the kind of the biggest games that are released mm-hmm. uh, have huge budgets so there tends to be perhaps less of a, a tendency to take risks than maybe other forms of, of, of other media forms mm-hmm. um, and the best thing about them remains the fact that you are plonked in a fully realized world. Uh, set in a historical period where you have uh, historical characters and you can play up historical books mm-hmm. and you get to kind of play along uh, with some of the kind of major points of history in a kind of silly way but also a thoughtful way occasionally too mm-hmm. um yeah so the, I think the environments the kind of historical simulator aspect of it is its most charming uh feature
0: yeah I I agree with you and I love just exploring the world I mean it, it, it does become tempting I guess as we've already touched upon to, to wish that you can just explore the world and not have to do any of the other stuff the gamey stuff that is in there but um i can understand the reasons that it needs to to stay a game in some ways and to appeal to those uh mass audiences i i mentioned in introducing assassin's creed that effectively throughout this series you are playing games within games these these are explicitly simulations of history that your character in the various games is is exploring. Is that valuable, do you think, for how we understand the representation of of history in the game, as opposed to imagining a series that is simply set in the past and doesn't have any of this modern-day kind of layer to it?
1: I think that's one of its greatest strengths. So within the game, as you said, you're, you're playing a simulation of it, either because you're in a machine called the Animus, which is taking memories and playing them back to you or because you yourself are a games developer. So it allows you to kind of peel back the levels of artifice and that helps you realise they're there. Um, So the reason everyone speaks modern English is because it's translated it for you. Mm -hmm. They'll add uh, maybe features, so in Assassin's Creed, Black Flag, which is the pirate one, uh, Mm -hmm. there are some steps in Nassau and you have um, because it's a game you have a little in-game database And the Mm. in-game database shows you the discussion between fictional games developers deciding whether or not to put it in. And they decide to put it in because it's iconic, but it means you get to be part of the conversation about historical accuracy. And Mm. when something is worth deviating from the historical record for what it's bringing to to you as the gamer, uh, what makes something iconic... Uh, when something's too heavy-handed it's nice it's it's i really like that it puts it at the forefront not the forefront because you still have to actually seek it out actually mm. um but i like that it makes you aware of the, the it makes you aware of what you're doing by playing these games and it makes you aware of what the game developers are doing by making them mm. which i think is its, it's strength yeah. and
0: probably points of common ground then between making and or playing a game and other forms of historical inquiry i mean i i also really enjoyed the kind of the additional metatextual notes there in in Black Flag as they were kind of exposing the sorts of decisions that might have to be made in telling any kind of historical story and actually in, in some quite witty and nuanced ways reflecting on on those kind of political controversies that we've already talked about to what extent does Assassin's Creed become political to what extent does the game within a game want to be a political exercise or need to be one uh, you've already mentioned stephanie uh issues of space in in these games and it makes me wonder about the sort of actions that our character is is normally going through in the game i mean uh, particularly those 18th century games perhaps less so in the, in the later assassin's creed ones but it seems to me and i think it's a point you raise in, in some of your critics reviews that a lot of it is about climbing mm-hmm. and that some of these 18th century spaces are maybe better suited to that kind of verticality of space than some of these other spaces?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the the original mechanics of the game, which were basically climbing around rooftops, jumping down, hiding, are much more suited to cityscapes, and I think Paris mm. was perfect for this because it's dense, there are lots of easily recognizable buildings, which means that when you're playing it you kind of get a, ooh, I know what that is, uh, rush, uh, I think they had to make a few changes. So they added the spire of Notre Dame because they thought it would look nicer than whatever. They weren't mm-hmm. quite sure. I think there weren't as many records for the 18th century one than the 19th century one, and obviously mm-hmm. the 19th century one is more iconic. Um, and also I think they had to change the pitch of the roof so they'd be more easily climbable. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's they're much better suited to a dense cityscape where you can kind of travel around easily jumping over houses compared to the others, or which are set in America, which tend to be... Uh, more rural so Mm. it's more about trees and jumping from house to house via trees and that sort of uh, movement which is maybe less less exhilarating than a rooftop pursuit or something like that
0: and maybe accounts for what seems like some ambivalence i guess in in the assassin's creed fandom towards particularly assassin's creed 3 but then that said it it, it also seemed that the, the paris set unity didn't have the best reception, although that may have been more about sort of bugs and technical problems mm-hmm. when it was first launched. Um, before we started recording earlier, you mentioned to me, I think this was a really great point, that the way that we encounter actual historical figures and personalities at points in these games can feel rather peculiar. I think you you talked about the film Forrest Gump in the sense that some of the time your character in these games seems to just encounter absolutely everyone, a who's who of, well, whether it's the French Revolution or uh, the American War of Independence. Um, is it still thrilling, nevertheless, to, to be meeting these historical figures, kind of meet up with, uh, you mentioned Benedict Arnold before, whoever it might be?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's, that's definitely the fun of it. I think that is the difference between... Subtle games design and not so subtle games, games design. So when you play Assassin's Creed 3, it's set in the American Revolution, you know you're going to be throwing tea into the Boston Harbour. There's no, there's no <laughs> way you're getting around that. And that's going to be part of the exciting. What you don't expect is that you're going to be on the back of Paul Revere's horse or, right, or Paul Revere's on the back of your horse and you're <laughs> going to each house to tell people the, the British are coming or whatever. Like, I think there's a difference between enjoying those um, obviously hokey... Mm -hmm. Uh, setups but not taking them too far Mm -hmm. and what I liked about unity I think I said this with you at the time is how lots of the kind of Parisian inhabitants you have to meet because you read a newspaper and then you get a little thing come up on your your little mini-map saying oh there's something here and then you go there and then you'll meet the Chevalier Dale or something like that so that Mm -hmm. feels more organic and fluid and more like you're actually inhabiting a real city where these people have to be walking around doing their business while you are there rather than this endless lineup of all the kind of founding fathers coming to seek your guidance and your help, which seems, feels, it puts you out of the moment a bit, I think.
0: Mm. I mean, you, you also, I think, had had mentioned earlier the sense of a lack of, a healthy lack of reverence, perhaps, in terms of the, the people that you encounter, that, I, I mean, I agree with you about slipping out of the moment when it seems like it's simply a a set of tick boxes that you need to meet George Washington, you need to meet so-and-so, but that actually, in terms of the historical work it's doing, these games might be doing something quite positive in demystifying certain historical figures that you are, are meeting with.
1: Yeah, I think if you compare that to other representations of, especially the American Revolution in pop culture, something like the Patriots, Mm. Uh, which approaches from a very different perspective I think it's quite healthy to see, it, uh, see the American Revolution as a, a series of historical events that happened rather than this kind of grand nation level mm. and nation making mm-hmm. uh, epic um, and what I really liked about it is the way it ends is that it's not this triumphant victory when the English sail off into the sunset well the British sail off into the sunset from New York Harbour um, but and the main character is left basically um soliloquizing uh Mm. on the fact that there are slaves for sale yeah in ports up and down the country um so i yeah i think on the one hand it can take a bit too far there's never a mm, kind of a historically important figure who isn't either a templar or an assassin uh and i don't think assassin's creed 3 is probably the most guilty of this in assassin's creed 2 i think it's revealed that Margaret thatcher was and so was uh Oh, the CEO of B P at the time of the oil spill. So right, it, okay. it takes liberties <laughs> with things to quite an impressive extent. Um, so yeah, maybe I think William uh George Washington being a, an assassin, or not George Washington being assassin, but certain members of the fan of being assassins or Templars isn't too uh far fetched compared to other more recent other things yeah. that
0: they reveal. Yeah. I mean it this all naturally leads us back to the points that we've already made about politics and the hesitation i guess on the part of big budget uh major games developers like ubisoft to to actually commit to any political viewpoint and to want to say oh, our, our games are, are apolitical there's there's nothing political in this but really these assassin's creed games they they necessarily are they they cannot not be political in in some fashion yeah um and i guess part of that is just that that everything is political and certainly leisure leisure and playing a game having the money to play a game having the ability to play with history at all must have some political element to it i guess
1: yeah absolutely so on the on hand you have saturn's creed which has as its main characters um often politicians uh i mean the, the Assassin's creed itself is a saying and it's all about what the the saturn's value which is supposed to be freedom compared to order which is the Templars value hmm. but as gamers ourselves like you just said um Yeah, leisure itself is political. Play is political. And I think we were talking about earlier, the the guilt you feel uh, if you spend hours and hours (laughs) of your time playing these games, Mm. uh, because it doesn't feel productive or you know other people don't see it as productive compared to maybe reading a book or something Mm. like that. Because it does, it takes, you're spending hours of your time on something that you don't need to spend hours of your time on and something that maybe you don't see in society doesn't see as being of any kind of inherent value to you or your your self-fulfillment or your mm-hmm. education about things.
0: And that, that itself, that, that sense of guilt and how one deals with that or um, kind of refutes that must be political. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Just before we move on from Assassin's Creed, I wanted to talk briefly about the idea of collection and collecting items, collecting trinkets, whatever it might be, that forms much of the activity, not just in Assassin's Creed, but in many modern video games. And it's something that we might return to in a minute with the other game that we want to talk about. But it makes me wonder, just looking at Assassin's Creed for now, how far that principle of kind of enjoying the game by collecting, by accumulating things, how, how much that really correlates or maps on to 18th century cultures of collection. Um, obviously, I mean, it's a great age of, of particularly... Um, western powers collecting things from various other countries around around the world uh but is it the same thing when we encounter that instinct um and that kind of repeated action in a game like assassin Creed 3
1: i think one of the main differences as if you're used to playing games then when you see a collectible to collect your immediate instinct is to assume there's going to be a benefit for you down the road. Either mm. you have more money-spending game or you might get um, some experience points from it or you might get a little achievement pop-up on your screen. So in that way, it's it's different because there's not just social kudos from collecting mm. them. You're expecting a tangible uh, reward for it. So mm. that's that's the, the main difference um, in, in actually collecting, I think.
0: I guess it's also a sense of, completion and completability isn't it that in these games you're presented with
1: five out of a hundred exactly
0: you know that at some point or other you can collect all of the coins or collect all of the i think you can collect pieces of of ben franklin's almanac uh, in in one of these games so you know that there's a hundred percent in prospect whereas thinking of some of those major 18th century collectors who are as you say really collecting out of fundamentally a more open-ended sense of curiosity, they're they're never going to reach a point at which their collection is complete. Yeah, and
1: that would be beside the point. Quite,
0: anathema to the whole uh, idea of collection. Well, there are a number of points we've already made there which will probably be also relevant to the second pop-cultural source that we're considering in this episode, narrative adventure game The Council, which was released episodically for consoles and PC from March to December 2018. In a slightly intriguing coincidence, it is like Assassin's Creed produced by a French company, in this case Big Bad Wolf, though it's a much smaller production than any of the big budget Assassin's Creed games, with correspondingly less publicity surrounding it. It takes place in the 1790s, and it again concerns itself with secret societies, telling the story of Louis de Rocher, member of the Golden Order, who goes searching for his mother, the Order's missing leader, on a mysterious island peopled with various notable historical personalities? As he investigates his mother's appearance, Louis must hone various social skills, both by reading books and by making the right choices in conversation. And he must navigate between the competing agendas of the likes of George Washington and Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, I have to confess before we launch into conversation about this, I have played and quite enjoyed the first episode of uh the council but i know that you've got much further with it uh than i have stephanie it was quite fun wasn't it
1: i i yeah i hadn't heard of it until you mentioned it um but have now as of last night finished it well done Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and i loved it i thought it was it, yeah, it was it's great really good ideas that i think could be even more uh they could be maybe better executed mm-hmm. uh but yeah really fun and uh, unexpectedly enjoyable Game with a few teething issues, but uh, more than enough to interest lots of people, I think. Um, yeah, really imaginative in its use of mechanics. Yeah, it's great.
0: I mean, the the graphics, I guess, do leave something to be desired if you're accustomed to the really multi-million Assassin's dollar Creed, Assassin's yeah. Creed kind of stuff. The voice acting, I also found one of my bugbears, this kind of French hero being, being voiced by this American actor, and I, I was just left constantly forgetting, actually, that he was meant to be French in the first Especially place. Especially
1: because Napoleon does have a French accent and mm. the other French character has an English accent. So there's, there's no consistency, which is really, really grating and uh, it, it doesn't get less grating over time. And uh, there's no option to play it in any other language, so you're stuck with American yeah. Louis.
0: It's it's a shame, given it is a French company making it, that you couldn't just kind of have him, have him as a French-speaking character... Um, I already mentioned in terms of Assassin's Creed about kind of the the role of collecting things. And here in the council, we do collect books, which I loved doing. I mean, I don't know about you, Stephanie, but the chance to actually collect a copy of Francis Burney's Evelina and have my character read that to improve his etiquette, um, whatever quotient that... uh, that he then uses in his conversation. I think even though my character didn't need it at that point in time, I immediately made him read Evelina just for the sake of being able to say I'd had a character reading that novel. Uh, were there other books along here that you enjoyed having your character interact with? Did you think that that whole mechanic worked quite well?
1: I yeah, I loved the book collecting. um I thought it was a good way to collect books and have them to have a, a, a reaction on, on the game itself. So I think. The best thing about any game is when the all kind of aspects in the environment operate together. Mm. So to be able to go back collecting and it to have a tangible effect on your experience of the game, I think is brilliant. I love that he could read Avelina. <laughs> uh, I also like that you could harangue a servant to give you the soil as the young verther. <laughs> uh, the idea that you go back collect the pages, the encyclopedia was good fun. I
0: did, yes, that yeah. was great. And also getting handed at one point a copy of... Edmund Burke's reflections on the revolution in France by none other than Napoleon I mean I, I really didn't know what to make of that particularly but of all of the books that he would choose to be handing to us um it, w- it was bizarre and kind of wondrous I thought
1: yeah I'd love to know the decision making process time which books they chose and where they decide they'd leave each book who which which characters would be reading which uh, um, it would be fascinating to to know to know more about
0: I, I also guess that this uh, book collecting as well as, as the conversation mechanics do link in, in in interesting ways to ideas of social character, of, of personal character in the 18th century, of social conduct. Um, and so to have the game largely focused on that is what you're doing. I mean, there's no real fighting, at least as far as I've got, gotten in the game, um, but that you are approaching conversation a lot of the time as a a kind of social duel of sorts um that worked for you as well
1: yeah so um i love that uh so compared to most role-playing games where maybe you improve your stealth or your your attack here you improve your etiquette level or your your politics knowledge mm. and then in conversation you can deploy it against someone and they have weaknesses and strengths which means that if when you're kind of approaching this social duel you have to be aware of what you can and can't use against them and it, it gives it a sense of um uh, of threat that maybe it wouldn't have if you were just asking normal questions without this kind of cut and thrust mm. of everyone having um vulnerabilities and immunities uh, and it yeah it worked well the way you improve by doing certain things reading certain books uh seemed yeah i love that bit
0: Sorry. fantastic i mean we we talked a bit and i have mentioned that this has in common with assassin's creed the fact that the story, the telling of history is very much via conspiracy theories and secret societies and the like. I guess I do wonder a bit about the problems of that and if it feeds into some quite unhealthy political instincts to always be looking for for the hidden history, for the conspiracy, um, kind of an approach to history which has historically itself been very much linked to anti-Semitism, for one thing, so um, kind of far-right movements. I'm not saying by any means that the council strays into that area, but do you, do you find that problematic?
1: I, I do. As someone who enjoys reading about conspiracy theories but doesn't believe any of them, I think there's a danger that sometimes it can be um, fun but not healthy, especially uh, as we've seen how in recent years they've been embraced in certain spaces. I think what concerns me... So in both, there's always uh, hidden societies uh, pulling the strings behind what's going on, on the, when they're set. What I think sets the council apart for me is there's a bit, I think it's in episode four, episode three, where you go and speak to this kind of nefarious character, Lord Mortimer, who's invited you to his private island, Mm -hmm. uh and who is assembled he's the great and the good of the 18th century around him and you ask him about his kind of plan for the future and the stuff he comes out with um things like he so he wants to liberate women so they can enter the workforce so they can be taxed and so their children can go to school and they can be indoctrinated Mm -hmm. and along with other things see have certain Facets uh, in common with some kind of conspiracy theories. We're hearing more about n- ma- now, like the idea of cultural Marxism. Mm. Uh, so that was towing the line for me a bit. Even if it, it even if it doesn't fall either either way on mm. the value of his actions, uh, it is it's, that that seems to be quite close to the bone. But I mm. think they can be approached as a bit of fun and a way to give you a sense of stake in these historical mm. uh, moments. But on the other hand, I don't know if we're, if we're conditioning people to, like you say, always be looking for the, the, hidden, the mm. hidden power behind any any activity and whether that's a healthy way to be thinking about how history is made generally.
0: Mm. Uh, I mean, I guess it does link to some genuine and healthy excitements of historical inquiry that you can discover new perspectives and, and new perspectives in themselves are not wrong. But I think I, I tend to agree with you that at least up to the point I've got with the game, it is already coming a little bit close in some ways to uncomfortable territory there. There's some really splendid art being used throughout this game. I I really enjoyed the way that exploring Lord Mortimer's bizarre mansion in, in the game, you are often confronted by his own collection of incredible artworks largely sort of renaissance and, and 17th century artworks that he has assembled there um did you enjoy that likewise did you think that that worked well in the game
1: i really like that but um i think so when you look around Louis says oh this can't possibly be here because i've seen it in the vatican or <laughs> something like that so when you're looking around you know it's a fantasy collection there's no way it could possibly exist and it's of um basically unimaginable value it would never exist for that reason um i liked how it frustrated me you can actually look at the painting sometimes. Mm. Uh there's no option to press a button, look in more detail, they're just things on the wall, and you kind of have to pan the camera around to get a better look at them. So I found that frustrating because on one the hand they're there and they're a kind of a sub a sub-part of the narrative. Uh, but on the other hand you can't actually look at them in any detail. Um but what I did like is that in every wo- room, um, the paintings illustrate either something about the occupant's character or their story or what's about to happen to them That, that kind of gives the game another another level for the game to appreciate it on
0: and i suppose looking at it from the the other direction it's actually in a way it's quite refreshing to to see a game that doesn't try to gamify the art at all you're not collecting these yourself you're not getting any kind of reward for having seen all of them or having read the descriptions or the titles of them so something kind of um just more ingenuous, perhaps, about the way that you you walk through this particular space.
1: It also kind of highlights the the uncanny nature of Mortimer's Mansion even more. It's uh, it's an island, it's on an island in the Channel, uh, but it also seems to be subtropical. There are butterflies around it. There's a massive terrace that's open to the elements for no apparent reason. There's a library that goes up and down for apparently infinity it Mm -hmm. it makes the the space you're in even more fantastic and unrealistic which I also like.
0: I mean that in itself reminds me of some 18th century paintings like for instance Zoffany's Tribuna of the Uffizi uh, one of my favourite 18th century paintings and a kind of a, a quite an 18th century genre of painting actually where you see people in a gallery space and you get to see the paintings within the painting in a way this this game works quite a bit like that I think um we talked about historical figures and how they crop up in in Assassin's Creed occasionally that kind of danger of the Forrest Gump effect is it the same here kind of encountering Napoleon encountering George Washington and the like
1: I think the the conceit that like I said there's this mortal character who's who has these councils every few years and uh, where he invites Europe and the world's premier uh, philosophical and political figures to go and debate things. So that so the conceit is overt, So mm. it has to be all the big names in one place.
0: There's more of a rationale. Yeah, there's a it, rationale at least, at least. behind yeah. it
1: because uh, obviously, whereas Assassin's Creed, uh, it's it's supposed to be a representation of some uh, real things that really did happen. Whereas here it's kind of semi uh fantasy island that never existed it it's it's more of a an ingenious and imaginative use of the characters in the space and the mm. time period so i think i could excuse that uh it doesn't bother me at all on the other hand um one of the characters in the game is supposed to be is elizabeth adams and she's introduced as being the actually not stillborn daughter of john and abigail adams so she really did exist but obviously she, she she died the of american birth. president john the american, adams, yes. yeah exactly uh, and I found that a bit uncomfortable mm. kind of co-opting a real, a person's tragedy to make a yeah. game out of it and Beaumont she actually didn't have she doesn't actually have that much to do in the context mm. the plot I found frustrating as well but then I suppose in the same way Assassin's Creed where one of the, the main villains is, turns out to be the, this isn't really a spoiler he doesn't have, I don't think it has much effect on the plot <laughs> he turns out to be the, the, the royal silversmith mm-hmm. and he's a totally normal craftsman Mm-hmm. Uh, prestigious, talented, who, for, who's now a footnote for being the, you know, <laughs> the, the main villain in a in a game. Who's yeah. So I think I think it depends what you're using them for.
0: Yes, I mean you did talk in our conversation prior to this recording, and I think I agree with you about the problem of all of the actual historical characters in this game, apart from Eliza- uh, Elizabeth Adams there, who didn't really actually exist. Live, yeah. Um, past. Um, her being stillborn all of them are male historical figures aren't they and and so it does feel like there's an absence there a, a missed opportunity to bring in I think we had said perhaps Mary Wollstonecraft would have been an ideal actual historical female figure to bring into this setup as opposed to I mean a rather dubious fictional character Emily Hillsborough yeah. who is, is presented in quite an extraordinarily sexualized way at least up into the point of the game that i've got to and i assume beyond that very much
1: definitely continues like that there is a totally unnecessary underwear scene she's got a corset on she doesn't have a shift she's got a, a very lacy black corset uh which she very yeah definitely presents to the to the gamer um yeah so i think this really bothered me so it means that the only characters who are women uh are your mother who is an air for most of the game? Elizabeth Adams, who mm. for one reason or another, like I said, never lived beyond birth and mm. doesn't have much to use for the rest of the game, and Emily Hillsborough, who is yeah, essentially uh, is who is inc- who firstly again isn't real mm. and is uh, very much sexualized. When like like you just said, someone like Mary Wollstonecraft would more than happily fit the kind of the remit of the philosophizing yeah. uh, progressive character that whose interests may naturally overlap with those of Mm. the the island's owner so it would have been a perfect person and also fun i think she made a good character to include she'd have
0: been brilliant i can't remember off the top of my head if we actually collect any of her writings at any point but it would be a nice compliment to uh, edmund burke at least if her own response to the french revolution were also included um one last question just to ask then about this particular game the council and how it compares to assassin's creed relates to the use of space and this is not then a game about climbing up to the highest possible peak we are kind of constrained aren't we far more than assassin's creed kept within this mansion which is itself within the island you have talked about it being kind of dreamlike and deliberately surreal you think that works in terms of engaging with with history in that way
1: I think so. Um, on the one, so Louis can't run very fast. He is very deliberately restricted in what he can and can't do. Lots of rooms you can't go into at most points of the game, so that kind of makes it feel more like a real space. Mm. I don't know how much that has to do with history, but compared to them, like uh, the Assassin's Creed landscapes where you can happily traverse the Hudson River Valley in about <laughs> twenty minutes or something, it's it's yeah, it's it puts you more in the space it gives you a yeah. better sense of, of, of the place than maybe other games do. Although, again, like you said, the graphics aren't as good as, as lots of other games, and it has lots of other failings. Mm. I Yeah, it, it works for the purpose of a, of a low-budget sure. game, which is basically a not a murder mystery, but murder mystery-esque mm. in the way it's set up.
0: And I suddenly would say one of the biggest challenges of living in the 18th century must have been coming to terms with mobility and... How you're able to move about, and who is able to move yeah. about, and I guess this this sense of, of being contained might reflect interestingly on on that as an experience.
1: Yeah. I guess, especially as you get to send letters off, and um, mm-hmm. of course, so there's a sense that although you're kind of isolated on this island, that there is a, a functioning continent just beyond your reach, and you're part of this public of letters, and you can snoop and read your neighbour's letters to other people maybe counterfeit them of your own so there's a sense that you are part of the larger web which i think is definitely reflective of the period itself
0: well it seems like if you pardon the pun we have covered a lot of ground in our discussion so far of both of these games before we finish it would be great if we could at least just briefly touch on some of the other games set in the long 18th century that we haven't had a chance to discuss in detail in this episode For one thing, it seems like there's a relatively thriving industry away from that so-called hardcore gaming community of games, perhaps games on mobile or or on tablets, that uh, play on the tropes and expectations of Jane Austen's novels. Um, I'm thinking of a game I played a few years ago now called Regency Love that kind of, again, has you building up your etiquette points and navigating your way through uh, an Austen-type romance story um, you're familiar with a, a number of other games I, I think Stephanie yes. in that particular genre
1: so there's Evergame, which is a memorpoga or massively oh, massively multiplayer Multiple. online role playing game uh, where your character is dumped in an English village essentially, and you have to make a backstory and you interact with other real inhabitants. So these are other people on the other end of their keyboard mm. uh, who are also looking to have to make relationships with people. Um, and you can only, within the game, it's kind of self police that you need to speak as if you are living in the Regency. Uh, which is as level in authenticity to it when presumably people who are playing it or sort of authentic experience. Yeah, I have to
0: say that sounds like my nightmare um, entering into an Austin conversation to start with, but then having the added layers of inauthenticity that surely come with it being online and having all kinds of expectations from around the world as to what the actual. Um, kind of austin way of speaking and, and way of behaving oneself should be
1: yeah um, <laughs> i think on top of that i think the one of the problems in kind of more, more is that everyone wants to be the hero whereas something like that maybe doesn't translate quite so well onto a, kind of a, a marriage plot novel because mm. there can only be one heroine and maybe some other yeah. sub heroines not everyone can be on the lookout for the perfect match with the vicar or
0: whoever. I fear I would end up as Mr. Collins for the entirety of my <laughs> playtime. Uh, it, it's not next on my to-play list, I think. Um, there's also recently been a game that I know neither of us have got round to to exploring yet, but I'm I'm really looking forward, hopefully eventually, to looking at it. The Return of the Obra Dinn from the very celebrated uh, games developer Lucas Pope, which seems, as far as I understand it, to explore... The kind of the goings-on of the East India Company in the early 19th century and involve you in various bureaucratic wranglings as you play that game.
1: Yes, yeah, so I think um, the, the plot of the game is that a ship has gone missing, and when it's found again, all the members on board are dead, and you have to go back and kind of piece together what exactly happened mm-hmm. um, Yeah, it looks fantastic. It's got really good reviews very excited to play it eventually
0: well hopefully we'll be able to have you back on the podcast in the not too distant future to talk a little bit more about that and some of those other games that might be on the horizon but for now many thanks for joining me stephanie i've really enjoyed talking about games about assassin's creed and the council particularly and thank you all for listening